Hey, my name is Bryce Ruthman, and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production by Neural, an agency that helps both brands and talent tell their story. To learn more, just visit neural.com. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My guest this week, Bryce Reuven, former mass contestant, radio presenter, and sports commentator as well. Bryce, uh, we're just having a lovely chat with Melissa about life on the peninsula. How's the adjustment to the lifestyle going down there? Yeah, it's good, Jordan. I really do like living on the Mornington Peninsula. It really <laughs> suits me having the the beach close by and we're in a bit of bush too. So we kind of get the best of both worlds. And uh, for Melissa and I going through Married at First Sight like we did, uh, we were living together, I think it's since Jan 20, a couple of days before the Australia Day weekend. And I guess living together in a quieter place while the TV show was on Channel 9 was good. We kind of got to... Yeah hide away a little bit, um, do our thing. But to be fair, we're actually in the city more often than we were at home after really? publicity. Yeah. So yeah. we sort of up around South Bank a bit and then down here and it's great. It's got a really good community vibe to it. I'm all for that, living regionally with a couple of radio jobs. I like living in small communities that are sort of close-knit and support mm. each other and the peninsula has that real feel about it. I think being where you guys are, uh, it would be very, very nice. I got to say that going down and seeing the in-laws, we're probably down there once a month. To I, I genuinely feel myself when I'm leaving the city, the sort of that base layer anxiety goes down a little bit on the M1 down there. And uh, yeah, I, I could definitely imagine that. And I could also imagine that being where you guys are, that you know, compared to say if you were living on Swan Street in Richmond. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be yeah. a very different lifestyle <laughs> yeah no it definitely is and look we got to the local shops where we live and people recognize us and say day and ask how we're going uh it's been funny when the show was on it's australia's number one show so you presume that most people are watching it when you're out and about and <laughs> people were coming up and saying to us oh not hey we saw this or we saw that a lot of the questions and comments to us were hey how are you guys coping are you guys okay so I think that's when I got a real sense personally. Uh, Alyssa's lived here for a couple of years, but when I've mm. sort of been here for a couple of months, I got the real sense of, okay, people actually care about each other here. They're not mm. out against each other. They're not trying to put themselves above uh, above others, you could say. And yeah, living on a potential has been good for that because we did need a lot of support while the show was on. Yeah, I think as well, because because it is a local community, there's the fact that, you can't just go walk up to someone and start ragging on them in public because you're going to see them the next day or the next week. It's just a, it's a very different environment. You'd probably um, see them down the pub next weekend. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about your childhood. What's sort of the earliest, what's your earliest inception memory? So I grew up in the Sutherland Shire in Sydney. Okay. I had two parents, mum and dad. They raised myself and my brother quite well. I think I uh, went through primary school and high school uh, it was sort of very sporty for us. Uh, my dad grew up working with the RTA, so very similar to what Melissa does with Vic Roads. Mm -hmm. So I guess that was where the instant connection for Melissa and I came because to me, the familiar, familiarities, or what, I can't even say the word, so I'm having a bloody tongue <laughs> twister. The similarities with the two of us, yeah. even our family experiences, were there from the wedding reception when I asked what you did for work. So it was good. Um, 
I was a sort of kid that didn't really enjoy high school. Uh, primary school was okay, but high school for me, I got bullied quite a bit and mm. I've never really understood why. I think because I was quite handy at sport, maybe that played a part in it. I don't think it was the sole reason, but I was very quiet in high school. Um, I was kind of reserved. Uh, I was only until I was about 18, maybe 17, where I came out of my shell. But for me, navigating high school was a real day-by-day situation. Um, mm. Yeah, look, people that bullied me, if you want to use that word, uh, during high school, I now am civil with or can have a conversation with. And I think we're all mature adults now that we're all around the age of 32 and we think, yeah, okay, you, you look at those times and you can laugh about it now. Obviously, at the time, I wasn't laughing about it. There was an occasion yeah. where I went home from school in tears and dad had to pick me up. I think it was in like year nine or 10, which was a little mm. bit embarrassing. Um, but at the same time too, it kind of made me who I am today. And I guess it's given me the confidence to speak out and stand up for myself because I never had that when I was in high school. And I wish looking back on my time now that I'm a bit older, I did have that confidence because I think high school could have been very different for me. Yeah. I had a similar thing at high school and I guess I'm curious then what, what were people like for me? Cause I went to a, um, I was lucky enough to go to a private school from the age of about 13 because my brother had gotten a scholarship. I was okay at sport and had general academia. So they, they gave me like 25% off. So it was enough for my parents to send us to this local private school. So it was a very different socioeconomic status to what we were used to. I mean, I would go to school with kids who would have $50 notes back in, you know, the year 2002, basically going to the tuck shop to buy whatever. And I'd have these, you know, these big crazy wog sandwiches. And um, we were different in in that regard. I know I was shorter um, for a period of time. I had like quite a severe underbite. So I think being different was was the initial cause of the bullying and being an outsider was the initial cause of the bullying. But funnily enough, I ended up becoming friends with that group of people because I learned to, it actually taught me a bit to sort of stand up for myself and fire back. But I remember there was like three solid years of bullying there where I fucking hated school. I had one friend in school from like year seven to nine. So what was that? Do you, do you remember what it was for you? Uh, very similar to you, Jordan. I was a kid that, <laughs> looking back at my high school photos now, uh, my brother and even Melissa and my family come with a Shermanator from <laughs> American Pie because I had vibes of Shermanator written all over my face. I had the underbite, oh, sorry, the overbite. I had braces okay. in at one stage and the freckles growing up as a kid and just not the tan kid. We lived near a beach and I wasn't the tan kid. I had the gelled spiky hair, so... I don't know. I just, I didn't fit into the usual mold of the Sutherland Shire where mm. a lot of kids did. And I went to a Catholic private school as well. Um, it's called Aquinas college. And yeah, we had a, it was known for a great education and great for its sporting programs too. Cause when my brother and I came out of primary school, we went to a public primary school and we loved it. There was no issues with public and the public system. And I don't ever get when I hear people say, Oh, the private schools 10 times better than the public system. I disagree. I think you've got a choice of how you go through your schooling system and worked out well for my brother and I, and we're two switched on adults now. And yeah, we really wanted to go to a public sports school that was big in the area. So we were big into soccer then and knew how to kick a ball. So we were always just like, yeah, mom, dad, 
sent us to the sports high school. But my parents were adamant that we had to get a good education and the school we went to was known for that. So mm. in the end, that was good. It was close to home as well. And yeah, a bit like you, I wasn't the kid that was rocking up to school with a $50 note. I was there. Mum and dad had pack lunches for us or give us a couple of bucks to order in the brown paper bag that you'd drop off on the way to your first class in the morning and get lunch at 1230 when the bell go off. So yeah, we were never spoiled as kids. Um, we were fortunate that we didn't come from, I guess you could say a poor background, mm. but we weren't a well-off family by any means. We just, my parents worked, my dad did two jobs and my brother and I were just very thankful that we had two good parents. So your dad worked at the RTA. Uh, yep. For those listening, RTA is essentially like Vic Roads, but for New South Wales. Your mum, what did she do? So she was a secretary for a small company uh, that okay. did building and structure reports for housing. So if you were to go and buy a house and get a, a building or pest report, uh, the company that she worked with basically organized that. And it was literally herself, her boss that did the reports and the boss's wife. So it was really a small team of three people. So she was never in a big office. Uh, dad started off in a registry and then went out to okay. do license testing. And then over time ended up going into the emergency services department when the Sydney Olympics came around in 2000. They uh-huh. brought in a new department that you see here on the roads. I think, I'm not sure what they call them here in Victoria. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. That, the big vans, the big vans and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The traffic like incident response van. So he went into that. And I think having those two different backgrounds, my parents were going through for careers kind of showed my brother and I that you don't have to follow what your parents do. You can go down different paths and it's okay. Uh, Liz works for Vic Roads here. I'm in the media. So we've got two very different paths. And I suppose when Liz and I have kids one day, hopefully they look at us the same as how my parents. I say this to multiple guests now, there's sort of a lesson that I learned from my parents indirectly and that was predominantly hard work. And that was mainly because up until the age of 11, 12, dad was never home until like 11 p.m. at night. So we wouldn't see yeah. him going to bed. When we were older, he would always be working on the weekends. My fondest memories as a kid was going into, he was a printer, right? So we had a factory. And um, the smell of paper is like a real warm paper. is like a real nostalgic thing for me. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, for you and maybe your brother growing up, was there a, a lesson or like this obvious truth about your parents that really stuck with you? Yeah. I think again, very similar to you, Jordan, that nothing in life comes easy. You've got to work for it. And I think that was instilled in us as kids growing up, whether it was schooling or sport or getting into the workforce, um, nothing is ever handed to you on a plate. I know people that have had everything given to them because their parents are very well off. Personally for me, I'm glad I grew up the way I did because you kind of look at those people nowadays and think, okay, you guys haven't had to work a, a second to get that dollar properly. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I know I would prefer to sort of be taught the way of you've really got to put a bit of effort into your work to make something out of it or mm. to go further in life. I think it's a good way of instilling it. And I know when I have kids with Melissa at some point, I'll sort of be that same sort of parent too. I think where you obviously want to be there to support them and whatnot, but you also want to encourage that, working hard isn't a bad thing. It's, don't be afraid of getting your hands dirty or whatnot. Now, in saying that, I did try um, being a landscaper for a few weeks out of high school <laughs> and it was no good because I was getting my hands dirty physically. But I'm a very, like to be sort of 
not a books type person on computers, but I mean, I'm a very creative person and like being in that sector. So getting mm. into media for me, I guess, was no real surprise to my family when it happened, but it really did come out of the blue. So I know looking at your career, yeah, so S, first job, I mean, I'm sure there was something in between there, but it seems at least first job, SCA, we've got Ace Radio back to SCA, then at Grant Broadcasters, then ARN, then back to Ace, and then Canberra FM Radio. So radio had always obviously been an area that you wanted to go into. I was curious, why radio over TV and sort of what was the the show for you that really drove that? growing up? Because I know you're a big fan of, I, I got a sense that you may be a big fan of Labby growing up. Yeah. I was a huge fan of, well, I was a huge fan of the Colin Jackie O show yeah. and Labby was obviously a character in that. And I've met him now in person on the publicity trail for maths. And we had this conversation that he was kind of one of the reasons why I sort of thought about ever getting into radio. Now leaving high school, I never left. And the next day I was like, you know what? I want to go and work in radio or be in media. It was never an interest of mine until I was about 21. So I left school and sort of want to get into uh, greenkeeping. I used to spend my school holidays at my grandparents' motel in the Hunter Valley in a town called Musselbrook uh, for 15 years. Every school holidays would be up there. And they were on the back of a golf course. And Pop used to have a big ride-on tractor lawnmower. And my school holiday fun was going – to his backyard, hitting the edge of the golf course on the right on mower, mowing the grass every day, even though I didn't need it. So I had a real interest around grass and sort of that type of thing. So when I was old enough to do work experience in high school, I would spend a lot of my holidays at the SCG and Sydney Football Stadium, working with the guys there off my own back, just sort of getting an understanding of that. And then a bit at Shark Park as well around Cruella, which uh-huh. for me was ideal because I'm a massive Cruella Sharks fan when it comes to NRL and working at your team's footy ground, mowing their grass and painting their lines for them and spray painting on the numbers. I was in heaven. I was like, I'm an 18-year-old kid. I'm looking after the Sharks' home ground. How good is this? I'm sitting on a medicab during games, getting the best seat in the house. And next minute, Paul Gallon's getting knocked out. I'm driving out in the medicab, taking the dressing sheds. So for me, I always thought I was going to be a greenkeeper and around that sort of sector. But as I got older, I sort of got into a bit of acting TV stuff and had a few small roles on some shows and did some commercials. And then also was trying to pursue soccer at the same time. So I was playing uh-huh. state league in Sydney and then got the opportunity to go up to Rockhampton to go and play uh, state league soccer up there. And I thought, you know what, oh, this is something different. I kind of wouldn't mind moving out of home, moving to Queensland. This is very different. It's going to really challenge me because I'm a real um, goal driven person. And my dream back then was to hopefully try and, play professional soccer, like any 18, 19 year old guy. So yeah. I thought, oh, what's the way that can get me to do that? And I had a guy looking after me at the time that was a bit of an agent for me with my soccer career. And he's like, why don't you go up to Rockhampton, go and play in the Queensland State League? And I thought, yeah, you know what? The club I went to was affiliated with an A-League team, the North Queensland Fury that are no longer in the competition. Mm. And I thought, well, if I go and play well at this club, you never know, you might get scouted to go higher up the food chain and play in the A-League one day. So that was my whole goal of driving up there in my uh, Hyundai XL, got up there and my parents were like, oh, you'll be back home in three weeks. You're not going to last because you've never left home and that sort of vibe. But I got up there. I've never been back home since. So, yeah, so that was 2010. You had at least two years in Rockhampton. Yeah. So I was up there for uh, yeah about two and a half years and 
that's when I ended up getting into radio because the first season I was up there, we were just sort of helping in terms of work with coaching schools and little juniors around central Queensland. And that was fun. You were sort of getting looked after to play soccer and then that sort of stopped. And then I was like, well, I want to work. I don't want to sit around the house just training and going to the gym and kicking a ball on weekends because we used to travel quite a bit. So it was actually hard to work full time because mm. every second weekend you'd be in Brisbane or Townsville or Cairns playing soccer. And then I met a guy out one night who worked for the radio station and he was like, oh, I saw that uh, you're playing soccer here. You've done a bit of stuff in TV. I'm keen to get into television myself. Have you got any advice? I said, oh, mate, I just did a few commercials. Don't ask me about it. I said, oh, what's radio like? And we got chatting over a couple of beers. And then we made a joke saying, well, if you help me get into radio, I'll help you get into TV. We both of us having no say in that whatsoever. We're just like, oh yeah, we can do that. And then lo and behold, it actually worked out that way. He moved wow. from Rocky to Sydney to go to an acting academy that I went through and I ended up taking his job at the radio station, heading out uh, cans of Coke, yeah, cheese so and bacon rolls in the morning in newspapers. It's just dumb luck then. So you just basically, it was the, this, this relationship got struck up and you're like, well, fuck, I'm not doing anything else. Yeah. And I like this idea of this thing. I've been doing this acting sort of stuff, testing things out. Let's try it out. Yeah, literally. And then I guess we were a bit around media circles playing soccer because there was a lot of local TV stations. Uh, the radio stations too would be doing interviews on a weekly basis. So I was kind of like, oh, that'd be a good fun job to do at some point. I might have to consider it if nothing sort of comes of living up here. And then lo and behold, I ended up stepping into the shoes of the guy that moved on in the street team. So I'm doing some weekend stuff and then, yeah, ended up getting offered a full-time role with the opposition station as their promotions and marketing manager. So uh-huh. I went into that and uh, yeah, that's where my radio career sort of kicked off. It's funny. Um, you mentioned before about the Fury. I was just thinking about who owned that team. I remember it was Nathan Tinkler. I remember he got done for, for some sort of tax related well, and thing. And Clive Palmer as well. He was involved. Did he? So Tinkler owned Newcastle Jets. Oh, and that's Clive, it, that's it. Clive yeah. Palmer owned Gold Coast United and the North Queensland Fury because when I was up there in Rocky, they had Robbie Fowler playing for him. I know, yeah. And they used to invite players up every couple of months to go and train with them for a week. So all of us in the team were like, oh, my God, let's get the invite up to go and train with Robbie Fowler. Now, I'm not a Liverpool fan. I'm actually a Man U fan, but I thought, oh, who can say they've gone and trained with Robbie Fowler? So it was sort of you had the real goal there of wanting to go and train with someone like him that you weren't just happy in the team you're in playing state league. You want to drive to that next level. So there was always a little carrot dangling in front of me. And I guess it's the same with radio too, that you want to keep going to get the highest point. I've sort of been like that with any sort of career I've gone down. If it's in sports broadcasting or in radio, like it is now for the last 12 years, Mm. you've always got that carrot in front of you dangling to try and get you to that next step. Mm. It's, it's funny how you mentioned like Robbie Fowler and that, um, space because i just remember when i first because i played soccer as a kid um growing up and uh i just remember going to like the first melbourne victory games when it was at olympic park when it was just like a um it was just the running track and then it was the pitch and stands and like a few areas which were seated and it's so different to what it is now obviously it's amy park but um, that's not the game they beat sydney fc 5-0 was it yeah that was the ground because I'm a Sydney FC fan. Yeah, you- <laughs> I remember that game vividly. <laughs> I remember we fucking hated Sydney FC. You still they- do, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Look, to be honest, I um, 
I remember this so well. I stopped supporting the, the soccer as much when I, I think I was like 16 or 17. I stole 20 bucks out of my mum's wallet. Yeah. And uh, my dad found out and I was going to the grand final. So this is the grand final that Victory won, their first grand final yeah. or their first final. And yeah, it, it was like the most devastating thing ever because my dad grounded me. I wasn't allowed to go to the game. Like he grounded me two hours before the game yeah. was on. And I was meant to be going with these friends. I just, yeah, it's such a vivid fucking memory in my life. Well, I remember being at a grand final when Sydney beat Melbourne Victory at Etihad Stadium. It was back then. I was just going to show how much of a sportsman that I am. And Sydney won in penalties. And Kevin Musket hit the post and missed his first of a penalty as a professional. Yeah. God, those are the days, man, when they had it at Etihad because they they had such big crowds and they didn't have a And the stands got bought in and, oh, that was peak A-League. Now it's like, you're lucky to get 5,000 to a game. So, okay, let, this career, obviously, there's one, two, three, uh, well, two, three, four, four or five different stations there. You've obviously got Football Victoria as a freelance commentator. I was curious for you over this, this span of this career, what seemed like the golden principles about broadcasting and entertainment to you that you've learned? For me, there's two different sort of ways you can look at it from the professional standpoint amongst the station. And then you've got the standpoint too of your listening audience. So for me, the listening audience was always number one. It was about being there for them, uh, especially in a regional station. Uh, You're the voice of the community. Now people might laugh at that and think, oh geez, like you think you're above everyone else. And it's not like that at all. But I think if you've lived in a regional community, that's got a smaller radio station, you would get what I'm saying. But if you don't, the radio stations are the backbone of that community. So they're there raising awareness of local charities. If there's a bad weather event, like a fire or cyclones, like it was in Queensland, you were there for the emergency broadcasting. So every person in that region knew who was on the radio. So I worked in Rockhampton, Bundaberg, Tarragon. Majority of those people that lived in those areas knew that we, who we were on the radio. They might not have met us or know what we look like, but they would know the voice or know the name because they would associate us to being part of the community. And I've always liked that. But from a professional standpoint in terms of the station, I think the way it's going now is completely different to how radio was when I first started. So if you were a gun announcer, that's all that mattered. If you were on air, that's the main thing. Cool promotions and that, it's all there. But it's like, uh, if you sound good on air, you're hired. But now because of the COVID situation in the last probably 18 months to two years, if you've got more skills behind you and you show that you're a hard worker or you're willing to learn and listen, that will get you further. So even myself, um, I've been in the game for coming up to 12 years into this year and I still have a lot to learn. And I'm one of those people that craves feedback, um, not every single day, but to help me sort of learn. Um, Same as I think it comes from the sporting background. You always want to improve yourself as a, a soccer player or a footy player. And it's the same when you get into radio, probably even with your job too. You always want to sort of find new ways of improving yourself um, in the agency so you can do it. Same in radio too. And that's the thing. I've always sort of had that focus on being very driven and showing that I'm sort of there for the station. A lot of people I've worked with in the past have sort of been there just for themselves. And that's one thing I've always wanted to separate myself from in terms of those people because I think they get found out quite easily in the industry. And at the moment I'm not working, but I do also see a lot of people in radio that 
this is just my personal opinion. There's a lot of people out of the game at the moment that got let go because of COVID that should be in there. And a lot of people that did yeah. keep jobs that probably shouldn't have kept their jobs. Yeah. Oh, well, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember a couple of weeks ago we had Christian Hull on and he said that, because I said, what's the best and the worst thing about radio? And it sort of sounds like the best thing for you at least is that sense of community and uh, the the feedback you get personally, the the feeling you get personally from having an audience and a, and a community, so to speak, whether that's metro, local, national, whatever it may be. But the down, the downside to that is that because there's so few people that can gather certain spots that can touch on that community, whether they're a producer, like an EP or an announcer, it means that, yeah, a lot of people get not so much the left behind, but they just, they have to go make it themselves. And I think that was the thing that Christian had is like, he was basically told that he was just too fabulous to be doing his own stuff on radio. Cause he was, he had a similar thing. I think a lot of people who were in radio always talk about Kyle Sandlins. Yeah. Um, I loved Kyle growing up listening to him and Christian, it was the same thing. He said, I just want what Kyle's got, so to speak. So yeah, I, I'd hundred percent agree with that. And it's, it, I guess it warrants the question of where do you see now that we've had this COVID thing where basically 30, 40% of people in radio got made redundant from SCA and ARN. Yes, there will be some people that are re- rehired, but what do you think that does to sort of the market here locally, particularly when it comes to indie production and stuff like that? I think, and again, this is my personal opinion, I think it's really cheapened the product from a regional sense. There's a lot of stations regionally that can make a lot of money. And I guess radio is no different to any other media platform that if you're not generating money, you've got nothing to base yourself off or to survive. So COVID obviously affected that. That's why people lost their jobs. And I was quite fortunate that I maintained my job with SCA and ARN when that hit. People in our station got let go, unfortunately. And some of them were my good friends too. So that's also hard to see. But I just think it's cheaping the product. There's a lot of networking in radio now where they've gone to state-based shows, for example, with SCA. And uh-huh. people that are doing those shows like are very fortunate because they've basically taken a job of maybe 20 other people but at the same time too, you can't connect with each individual regional center from one state-based show. That's my opinion. Mm. Um, having worked regionally and having lived in these areas, these regional areas are so different from each other. A uh, prime example, Rockhampton and Bundaberg. Yeah, sure. They're both very similar towns in terms of north side, south side, river through the middle, like a port city, like every Queensland regional town. But the characteristics of Rockhampton and Bundaberg could not be any more different. So to have one show going into both markets, it doesn't really localize that station. You can do a break that's recorded very quickly off the cuff because they have to do it for 30 seconds or a minute to bring in localism, but that's just cheaping the product. Mm. So I think it's kind of a little bit disrespectful that a lot of these smaller regional centers, and when I say smaller, your towns like a Bundaberg or Rockhampton um, or like a Coffs Harbour have lost their own local shows because they are the backbone of the community. And now it's kind of like, oh, we've got a station here, but it's actually coming from Townsville. It's coming from the Central Coast. It's not coming from the main street of Coffs Harbour, how it used to. So, and I think that's why people sort of say that radio is changing in podcasting and things like Spotify and that 
are becoming bigger and bigger. But I think radio is at fault for that itself because by achieving the product, as in taking the localism out of those stations, you've just encouraged people that would listen to radio to go onto those platforms because they've lost their sense of localism. You don't listen to your local breakfast radio show to hear Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift played no. a couple of times a morning. If you want to do that, you go into your Spotify's or Apple and do whatever. You listen to those stations to hear what's happening in your region, not what's happening in Townsville when you live in Rockhampton. You don't care because that's not your region. You want to hear what's happening around your region. So I think that's where radio is kind of a bit lost at the moment. Will it go back to that? I don't, I'd love to say yes. I would say no, because I think they've got a model now, some networks that they think is sustainable. And look, it probably is because they're saving money on a few salaries, but they're also too contributing to the industry dying because they're taking away the opportunity for younger announcers to come through, mm. through those regional markets like I did and to learn your craft and to try and get bigger and bigger. Um, I would never have ended up in Canberra if I hadn't worked in places like Taralgon or Rockhampton or Bundaberg. I think it gives a bit of opportunity. I've been listening to this uh, podcast recently called The Business of Media and, and the, the sort of hi, what they call hyper-local news affecting um, regional areas that have had big networks pull out of. So, yeah, I feel like there's going to be something there. And you mentioned before about the Spotify's and they've filled a gap for people who can't, who as a substitute for radio, but it definitely doesn't fill a gap or substitute for people doing local because mm. we were listening it today. Uh, I tried the daily drive on mine and it's really good. Like it'll put a song in, it'll select maybe ABC news for Melbourne Metro or maybe cause I, I listen to Jason PJ it'll put on like a clip from Jason PJ. Yeah. But, but still, it's still not that targeted and if i lived regionally i could see how that would not be the case yeah and it's really funny because i had a chat with kyle sandlands i caught up with him during the publicity of the show um melissa and i did and melissa got roped into a typical radio conversation that comes up when you put two radio people in the same room for a couple of hours and he was saying how he would love for his show to go into melbourne or to go mm-hmm. national as a national breakfast show. And I love Kyle and Jackie O. We listen to them every morning in our house here. We chuck it on the radio up and listen to them. And I could tell you what happens word for word on their show. And when I, when he brought that up, I sort of said, but you kind of take away the localism, like full due respect to Kyle Sandlands. He's the best in the business at what he does. And rightly so. But if they were going to put Kyle and Jackie O into Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, your other four areas where they're not living they lose that sense of localism and even people say oh localism in melbourne it's not really there because they're always chatting about things that happen all over the country but it 100 is like definitely is. yeah to me the best in the business here in melbourne um i do like uh jason pj but i think fifi box is miles ahead of anyone else in the industry here in melbourne um fev he's not a media guy but he's picking it up and bringing mm. in cody gives them a sense of balance, but you get no better in Melbourne and Fifi Box. And she's a, a household name in Melbourne radio. And it shows because she just knows what's happening in her backyard. Um, not saying that Kiss and the Novas don't, but I think the difference with someone like Fifi Box is she's been here for so long. She's got to know the city. It is her city. Um, yeah. You've got other female announcers here that try and sort of outdo her if it's being controversial or trying to just make a name for themselves in whatever way they can, they're no Fifi box. Fifi is leaps and bounds above everyone else. And 
when we met her in person, listen to her a couple of times uh, during maths, she was so nice to us. And we even had a bit of a small conversation about that. And I said, honestly, I've got so much respect for you being a radio person too, because of how you just own this city and how you sort of just portray it on air so easily. You would never know that mm. she's just, to me, she's like Miss Melbourne. Well, she, she filters what, what the locals are feeling. I think that's, that's where your point stands is that, yeah, it's really hard to do. Like if Kyle went to Melbourne and, and they were just broadcasting direct into Melbourne, like I listened to Kyle and Jackie O, but I only listened to the snippets. It's really hard because there's a lot of Sydney specific stuff there. Yeah. Now I found it really interesting you getting in uh, on the point of Kyle and Jackie O, you would have been doing the rounds because of media for maths. I was intrigued around your initial intrigue to maths. Um, it's funny looking at the, you know, when they did the presentation clip of the person originally. Yeah. And your you backstory. Know, yeah. Yeah. Your backstory. They do the cliche, you know, 30 <laughs> year old radio presenter, Canberra. How I actually remember walking to South Melbourne Market a couple of years ago and I got approached by someone and said, Hey, would you want to try? Uh, maths and obviously I was like, well, no, I'm in a relationship. But um, I would assume most of the casting is people submitting. But how did you sort of come into this whole thing? When, when did the idea come up? So there's been no secret that I was in a long-term relationship uh, living in the Gippsland region. I was engaged and ended an engagement uh, with that woman because I just didn't see it being the way to move forward in life. And Literally five days after that had occurred, I got a phone call out of the blue um, from a casting producer saying, okay. hey, it's such and such from Married at First Sight. Um, would you be interested in going on the program or auditioning for the program was the original. They never said straight up, um, are you interested in doing the show? And I said, oh, look, I've had a few things that have happened. Um, don't know if it's really for me. I, I am single, but it's relatively fresh. I've just got out of an engagement. Well, to them in their ears, it must have just pinged straight away. Now, like, look, <laughs> let's just have a Skype call. Jump on here. There's no pressure. If you don't like it, that's all good. But have a Skype call with us and get to know us and go from there. So I was like, you know what? Got so nothing to lose. Producer. Whatever. Yeah. So classic producer trait from the get-go for me. And then mm-hmm. had the conversation. I was like, you know what? That was actually went quite well. These people seem really nice and whatnot. Uh, then a week or so later, I was on a Skype call with the three heads or the two heads of the show and the head of channel nine. Okay. And I had a chat to him and they're like, Hey, what do you think about this? We've heard a bit about your background. We know that you're in media. We know that you've ended engagement. Like, are you genuinely serious about coming on? Well, I was like, well, you guys hit me up. I didn't apply for the show. I said, but I said, I had the conversation. I said, I was happy to meet you guys and go from there. So then their tune kind of changed a little bit in terms of trying to sell the program to me and what it could sort of offer. And in that initial conversation, something sort of clicked upstairs for me where I was like, hmm, okay, they're here to obviously help you in a relationship. Obviously, they want to try and find you the one. This is before I'd gone through the show. So I was watching it thinking, oh, yeah, you're going here to try and meet the love of your life. And it doesn't happen for many people, but there is still that chance it could happen. And I thought, hey, you know what? It's something different. So I continued through the process. And then there's a lot of paper testing, a lot of psych testing and whatnot. And then the further it went along and the more conversations I had with them, um, I was kind of convinced that they could actually help me in a relationship. Now, I don't claim to be a relationship expert, but I knew that I had flaws in a relationship that probably needed to get fixed. And that's why I sort of ended the 
engagement I was previously in because I was like, you know what, it wasn't a healthy relationship. What we're in from both sides, uh, not just myself or from her, but I thought I've sort of got to do something and kind of get some help about it. So I was actually seeing a psychologist while the process for the show was on, but I kept it quiet from them because I was like, you know, this is my personal thing. Mm. Um, my family knew about it, that I was speaking to a psychologist once or twice a week for probably about six, seven weeks. And wow. from there, she helped a lot. And this is when I was based in Canberra. And I think going to Canberra was good for me because it got me away from the environment I was comfortable with. I was single for the first time in five and a half years and I was in a whole new city, new job. I had a lot of excitement around me to sort of keep me distracted. But after a month or so of being in Canberra, that wore off. And then I hit a real low patch. So for me, I had a few dark days, uh, I'm not going to lie. And uh, my family got me through it and a psychologist did too. But then in the background was still the married at first sight process. And they were like, look, we really like you. We want to get you on. Um, can you send us a list of friends that you would invite to a wedding? So they never actually confirmed to you that you're going to be on the show until literally, or for me, it was, I think about three weeks prior, but some of them get told literally a week beforehand. Jeez. And, but you get a good sense that, okay, they're asking for a wedding list. They're asking for you to go and get your ring size fitted. They invited me to sit in to go and meet them in the flesh and record some stuff with them. And I was like, okay, maybe this is what I need to just be out of my comfort zone. I never once thought about doing a reality TV show. For me, reality TV was just sitting at home on the couch, having a laugh at people on a TV show, making a bit of a fool of themselves. And then you go on the radio the next morning and talk about it. Mm. So when it sort of got to the point I was offered to go and do maths, I was a bit like, is this right for me? I actually originally said no. I said, I don't want to do it. And then my boss in Canberra was the one that was sort of saying, hey, this could be good for you. Like he knew what I was sort of going through at work because he'd seen me in tears at work a couple of days when I was in a real dark patch of my life. And he's like, look, get out there, try something different. You never know what can come from it. Obviously you're in radio, going to TV. You've seen it's worked with people in the past. And I never did marry at first sight to help my radio career. But he was sort of like, you know what? You never know what can come from it. Just give it a crack in. Yeah, after speaking to a few other friends that had done the show, um, they said, look, what do you got to lose? So, yeah, that's what led me to Married at First Sight. So it sort of seems like for you at the time, the pros outweighed the cons of doing it. Definitely, definitely, because there were a lot of cons. Um, And if I was going to put it quite bluntly, it was probably a 60-40 split positive. Um, The thing that got me over the line was the support I had from my workplace in Canberra and my bosses. For you seeing the psychologist at the time, what what was the biggest issue for you in your life? Were you suffering from, because I, I remember I've spent, I spent years seeing a psychologist for anxiety, like generalized anxiety. Yeah. But it's all, it's all health. It was always like health related, like a, um, a generalized worry about things like having a heart attack and stuff like that. Okay. What, what was yours related to? Was it, related to the impact of that relationship breakdown or, or something else? Yeah, definitely. It was basically to do around the breakup. Now I did end it and that did put my mind at ease over a few things because I wasn't in the healthiest relationship and I'm not here to shit can my ex-partner because I'm not that sort of guy, but um, it just wasn't a healthy relationship. There are a few things that came up where you, you kind of feel for safety sometimes that type of vibe. And I was like, you know, I don't want to be in this environment. I just want to be happy. And I wasn't happy within myself in that relationship. And I've always maintained that you can't be in a good relationship 
unless you're happy amongst yourself. So speaking of the psychologist, she kind of tried to get me back in the right track of positive thinking. Um, mm. I was going through a lot of stuff where there was constant negativity coming from the ex-partner. Basically, just it was one big mind game um, mm. that I was facing. And I tried to get out of it. I tried to escape it. I wasn't in the way of being suicidal, but there was definitely a couple of days there where my parents were very worried trying to find a way to get down to Canberra because they couldn't because of COVID to try mm. and check on me. And um, they even reached out to friends that I had in Canberra and said, how is Bryce? Because he's not himself. We can see it. He's not at work and he's not on air because um, my parents were like listening to me from the Gold Coast. And I said, why isn't Bryce on air? And that sort of thing. So they got a real sense that knowing me for 31 years, like they did, that there was something quite not right. And then my mum ended up having a conversation with the psychologist and sort of, I don't know what happened in that conversation, but from then my parents got a real understanding of what was happening with me from the viewpoint of the psychologist. And from there I sort of went on the up, but my parents too were, sort of on the fence with me doing Married at First Sight. My mum mm. watches the show like every other lady in the country and was like, I love watching the show. It's my favourite show to watch, but I don't want to watch my own son in this. But I get it. It could be a good thing for you to get out there and challenge yourself because she knows how driven and how I am as a person like that. And to put me out of my comfort zone probably could have just clicked me straight back in again. I kept saying to her, look, I think if I go and do this show, it might get me back in the right headspace just because it's a whole new environment. It's uh-huh. completely new and it's exciting. I reckon it's worth giving a crack. So and you, that's why she's like, that's not the right thing to do. You're almost thinking, okay, I'm in a funk. Maybe this is the thing that can snap me out of it. Albeit the fact that you know and you're aware being in media that uh, at the end of the day, they're going to edit things the way they want to edit it. So I, I was curious then, what did the, what did the psychologist say to you about going on maths? She said, if knowing me like she got to know me, she could tell that I was the sort of person that would like to get out of my comfort zone if the opportunity was there. And she said, there's no bigger challenge in doing a show like Married at First Sight. So she's like, it's up to you. I'm not going to say yes or no to try and encourage you. But she's like, if you feel it's right, give it a crack. What have you got to lose? Okay. There you go. So the producer's side of things is very interesting. This is when you start getting into the thick of Think of a show. I've had um, good friends uh, just chatting to them. They made a show recently with Seven. Um, it was very funny because that Seven was that that show at Seven, and they've spoken about this on their podcast. So this isn't news, but they wanted it's, it was an animation. So Seven was trying to make them take some snipes at um, maths in general on the oh, show. Yeah. So they wanted to do a whole maths episode, which I thought was very funny. But what it did for for my mates at Stepmate Studios was they were able to just delve into how the show gets made. So um, they had told me that from from previous producers that they know that were on the show, some of them had been very much suicidal because of the impact or, or the knowing what they do to edit the show and impact the narrative for certain people. Because at the end of the yeah. day, it's the biggest show on the station. And you need to make it a good show and it's, and it wins. And you see this in Mumbrella when you get the stats each week, I was reading Mumbrella and I'd see the stats for maths and it's like double the viewership of any other show at the same time. So they're, yeah. they're, they're basically beating 10 and seven by an order of magnitude each night. 
So it's it's a and huge. I've since learned too, Jordan, that the ratings doesn't cover all platforms. It only covers. Oh, yeah, it's just just. It like, only covers houses that has those free to wear set top boxes as part of their TV. Yeah, because we, my wife and I, would watch the show on um, on Nine's like streaming app. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and th- they told me about the process of this idea. Um, a few internet comedians in Australia talk about it a lot. The Franken cut or the Franken quote, where you sort of stitch a few words together from um, different sentences to show how maybe someone is speaking. So it might sound like this is that great to think that as, you know, so it comes out really, really weird. So essentially what they're doing is crafting a dramatic narrative for each character. So each each person in a reality TV show, whether they're likable or unlikable, it doesn't matter to them. Their job is to make a show at the end of the day. So uh, I was curious, maybe you can talk to about some of the experiences outside of yourself because I know how you feel about you were edited on the show, but outside of yourself that made you realize how much this was about crafting a story versus a real look into the contestants' lives. Yeah, I guess there's a number of situations with Melissa and I that I could go into detail about how things were crafted to look a specific way on TV. Um, And a lot of it was to do with the views on others. Um, So, in the beginning, I went into it thinking mm, it's not that bad. It's just it's whatever happens in real life you see coming out in the show. And then I was a bit, well, not a bit, I was very naive to it all in the beginning because I actually had a friend of mine that used to be a TV producer that had done some stuff with maths way back then, but hasn't done stuff with them for a few years, but clearly has a sense of how these shows are made. She works on other reality TV shows now. And when it was leaked out that I was doing the show, I think it was like end of September, start of October, she reached out to me and said, hey, are you actually doing maths? I said, yeah, we're filming at the moment. She's like, please, Bryce, be very careful on that show. And I'm like, well, can you go into detail? And she sort of went on a few things saying, look, trust me, it won't happen here now. It'll happen in the editing suite when the show comes out for the rest of the country to see. So she's like, just be very careful with what you see. Now, this is after the scenes on the honeymoon after we'd done the rankings task where I'd put Melissa fourth out of the nine women. And I was like, oh, why couldn't you get in touch with me last week? Because just a little thing, for example, and this is publicly known. I've said this at the time that when that rankings task was put to us to do one, I didn't want to do it. it was basically forced into doing it. And then I was told to just do it based purely on looks where some of the other guys on the show were told to do it on personality or personality and looks but mine was purely on looks. So I was a bit like, okay, when I'd heard about it around the apartments, other blokes were sort of told to do it different ways. I was like, hmm, wonder why I was sort of told to do it that way. And then the week after I had the quick conversation with my producer friend and they said, hey, this will happen. So we had the situation around myself and Sam on the show. Uh, he's the guy from Melbourne that wants to be the fashion designer. And a lot of that was driven by producers. Now, I actually had a genuine dislike for that guy. Um, some of the comments that were sort of made off camera towards his partner, I thought were highly disrespectful to any any woman. And I didn't want to call it out. Uh, the producers just sort of said to me, look, you don't like those comments. When we get to this next dinner party, you've got to have a gold in. And I'm like, we don't have to have a gold in. We actually went to this bar in Coogee and they took myself, Jake and Patrick 
there to go and film this stuff. And basically said, Bryce, you go and rant about Sam for half an hour with these two guys. I was like, okay, <laughs> sweet. We'll get out of there. So for us, I was going to have a couple of free beers at this, at Coogee Beach. And then I found out later that Patrick had gone and done the same thing with Sam. So I was like, well, hang on, why did Patrick go with him? Because I was never friends with Patrick. Patrick and I, just different personalities. Um, he's not the sort of guy I would hang out with outside of filming a TV show. And I'd actually asked for a couple of the other boys to come. And I said to him, well, hey, why couldn't you guys come? And I said, oh, we never got told about it. So again, it was sort of creating their narrative. And then what happened at the final dinner party, we saw him come out with the the name calling and all that sort of stuff. And then me going back at him. And at that stage, I was a bit sort of reactive to situations because I was still finding my feet. And I thought, if you're going to sit here and slag me off and say, I've got a big nose and say all this and then have a crack at Melissa, I was like, of course I'm going to stand up for you because that's all stand up for myself and for her. Cause that's my personality to speak out, which is completely different getting back to the high school days where I was bullied. Uh, that's what I got a sense is that you're a disagreeable guy. And so, um, when these things arise, you would be quick to, to shut people down, which is exactly how I could be as well, particularly when it's around people in that I know better than, say, that other person. And that is a double-edged sword because it, it, it has come back to bite me at times. Like I know for, for a fact that I ruined by accident two friendships that my wife had, but in hindsight, they were not, good friendships because um and she said this herself they were essentially just mean people yeah at the time it was not a good move by me and look we were we were you know 20 21 at the time so it was classic case of um a classic case of sort of teen young adult drama but i i guess i'm curious when you we get into these specific situations later on but you know, when these producers are saying to you, oh, you don't like this stuff about Sam and blah, 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 did you, like, were you thinking in your head, maybe I should, like, talk to Sam about this or isn't this weird that they're asking me or prompting me about this stuff? What were you thinking about that? Yeah. So my original plan with that whole situation was to actually have a conversation with Sam and I'm not sort of guy to go and do it one-on-one in that setting. So for me, there's a difference in that setting. Um, there was a real sense of gossip on a TV show like that, because essentially you're in high school again. That's the vibe I got straight away. And I had said to a couple of the boys and to Melissa, I'm actually my producer when I think about it too, I'll have a conversation with Sam at the dinner table and say, Hey, like I've heard some of the stuff you've said about Coco. You said some stuff about Melissa as well. I don't appreciate it. I don't think, especially about my wife, the stuff with Coco was none of my business, but I thought, well, you're going to bring up something with my wife and say about her looks and whatnot. And then you're going to have a crack at your own wife. I'll speak up and defend that. But then he got told from Patrick that I was coming for him because a producer had said, oh, Bryce is going to come for Sam tonight and whatnot. But yeah, we want to kick off and be the whole night's drama. So that's where it all sort of went. And they even showed me saying, oh, hey, when he kicked off me, I said, oh, why don't we just wait until the dinner party? until we get to the dinner table instead. Cause that was me still trying to keep the situation, how I wanted to sort of play it out from my point of view. But of course, if producers get any sense that you're trying to control the narrative, they basically do anything in their power to change it, to get it back in their favor. So you're constantly in a battle with the producers. How, how are they doing that? Are they shouting things at you guys behind the camera? What, what are they doing? Uh, what they'll do is they'll pull out a contestant for a microphone check. 
they'll be gone for about a minute. You get in there, you've got the head producer, Tara, or your own couples producer coming out and saying, hey, don't worry about that. You just have a crack at him now and we'll sort it out later if it gets that bad. Because the situation with Sam and I, that conversation, if you could call it that screaming match, went on for a good five minutes and you had Rebecca chiming in, saying stuff and don't even know what she was saying, to be fair, because she had no idea what was going on. But there was comments that were coming around left, right and center from the room. And I said, well, hey, why is everyone getting involved in this? Because you've got no idea what the comments were that he made towards Melissa or to his own partner. I've just said the comments that you said to about both of them, but then everyone wanted to chime in. So it was going to kick off like World War Three in the cocktail party. Then all of a sudden the producer stopped it because I wanted to keep it going all night by having the waiter come in and going, ding, 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 dinner is served. You, yes, you. Are you intrigued by this episode? If so, go to our footer on the website, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com, neural.com. We're going to give you an insight each week. It's going to be on business, marketing, or a topic that we covered in the episode at all. We'd love your support, and it would help us in developing the intellect around this series. But without going on too much longer, let's get back into this episode. Do the contestants ever sit down amongst yourselves and just say, like, hey, they're trying, like, surely you guys have a sense that they're trying to stir shit up. Even the people that you dislike as individuals, surely you have that conversation with them. You try to, but they keep you all separated as much as possible. And if you're ever caught hanging out, so for example, around the apartments, you could never go and chill out in someone's room for the sake of just watching a footy game. We tried to so many times and there's always a house producer walking around the ninth floor of the Sky Suites monitoring where everyone is because it has to be on camera. If there's any conflict, there's situations where there was this rumor about um, Jake going for a boys' night out that affected his relationship with Rebecca. And Rebecca kept in insisting that there was this boys' night out. Now, there was never a boys' night out. It was a night out where about 12 of us went out. It was male and females because myself and Melissa were there. We were actually one of the people that organized it, to be honest with you, at a pub in Piemont across from Tulling Hub where we were staying so we wouldn't get caught. And then that affected their relationship because she had the shits that she didn't get invited along. Um, he went back to the room and had a bit to drink and spewed up and then she cracked the shits and went and had a bit of a whinge to the um, head producer saying he went out and all sorts of stuff. He's ruined the thing, ruined the apartment and all sort of stuff. And same with Jason and Alana. They were just annoyed that they didn't get invited. But a lot of people did their own thing. There was definitely people that got along with each other on camera and off camera. And yeah. there was honestly a huge divide in our group. It's such a weird, it is such a weird situation. I mean, you're all there on the same floor you can't it's almost like being in a prison cell because you can't go out to, <laughs> yeah, to, to other rooms to chat to people do you do you really think that like of the percentage of couples let's say do you realistically think that all of them are are matched appropriately no do you think 100% no okay no i can guarantee now jordan myself and melissa we were supposed to be the biggest train wreck of the series Okay. 100% guarantee it. The way our storyline played out, it was being set up that we were going to have this massive crash and burn towards the end of the series. We'd get through it. We'd have this big crash and burn because I was engaged six months prior to the show and Melissa had been single for 12 years and I was outspoken, wouldn't mind speaking up against someone else. Melissa was quiet and shy and hated conflict, but everything that happened with us brought us close together in this real unique way. But at the same time too, 
what they never saw was we were hanging out 24 seven together off camera. We'd be going for walks in the morning. We'd be going and doing some shopping. Now that might not seem like much, but when you're in that environment, that's like a date. So we were constantly going on dates ourselves away from yeah. the camera. We'd occasionally film it on our diary cam phones that they gave us, but um, she came down to Cronulla a couple of times, her and Jason to hang out with some of my friends for dinner. Um, we weren't supposed to go to any footy games or anything like that because it wasn't COVID safe, but Melissa and I went to games at the SCG, went down to Cogra to watch the Sharks <laughs> play a few times. We were sneaking out. Honestly, it got to the point when we realized what was happening that us, and I'm sure I'm very safe in saying this to the rest of the cast too, none of us gave a shit because we were like, you know what? You're here to make your TV show. You don't care about us. We're just going to do our own thing. We're here to film and we'll do what we have to for you and then that's it because Melissa and I kind of saw it that, you know, we'll stay until the end because when we know we're going to work outside of this show and it'll make sense for our storyline. But we got to the point where I tried leaving genuinely about, I reckon, six or seven times. Melissa twice, but they wouldn't let us go. I even tried to call the police one day at the back end of filming to get us out of there. Now, the producers or Endemol, whoever it was, has come out and said, oh, that's categorically, categorically incorrect. They know it's true because they caught me doing it. So, um, and that was at a payphone in Martin Place. So, there were situations around that where people say, Oh, if you want to leave, why didn't you just walk out and leave? It's because you physically can't. Yeah, it's, it's, and the matchings to me is, is strange. Like I said, I feel like yeah. some people were, it was almost, you could see it in social media comments. It's almost mm. a bit cruel the way that they match some people. So, there yeah. was, um, there's one couple in particular to me, one of the late, entrance it was um beth and russell russell they were an original couple but he was the steak lover she was the vegan yeah Mm. so and and to me i was just like these are not people that are gonna get along yeah and it just it to me it just seemed cruel to set them up as a Mm. couple you know what i mean yeah and it's the thing russell (laughs) him and i didn't really i actually thought he was an actor at the um the Bucks night that we all had when we all met the other blokes. So I turned around and said right. to the producer, I said, mate, surely he's an actor. Cause he's like, he had no idea on anything apart from steak and motorbikes. But when we met Beth and that was, she was like, Liz got along with her quite well. I had respect for her. I thought she was a nice lady, but she kept for some reason insisting that she wanted to keep staying and trying to work it out. And I remember saying to Liz in our apartment, we had a conversation with her coming up the lift. And I said, why is she insisting on saying, I said, there's clearly no connection from what we could see in our dealings with them. She has said on that couch filming a ceremony that there's just nothing there. Why are you staying? Like essentially it sounded like she was flogging a dead horse. So that's when you sort of question other people's motives for going on the show. Um, People, for example, that wrote leave three times during the experiment, then turn around and said that they're falling in love with someone. I'm sorry, if you're falling in love with someone, you don't write leave at all. Now, that could be a bit of pot calling the kettle black for me that people could say watching this podcast, but the situation where I did the stay leave card, that was driven by producers to get people talking. And well, did it work? Well, you could also say based on, like to turn back on you, what you mentioned before, you mm. don't know what's in the back of um, like what the, what's essentially being whispered into the other contestants' ears. Yeah. You know, like what yeah. you said before about the fact that um, you felt you wanted to leave and you both wanted to leave a few times. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't see how that wouldn't be applied to those 
to individuals as well. Mm. Um, because, yeah, from, from a production point of view, Endemol or whoever it is that's making it is like, okay, we've, we've spent all this cost on casting people. Let's maintain them because they're not paying you, right? They don't pay you whatsoever. So you don't get do paid as such. You get given yep. a daily allowance of 150 bucks. Okay. So you get a minimal allowance to get your basic needs, food, drinks, etc. Um, yep. And there's all sorts of obligations that come with that. So yeah, it's a really such a weird situation. I, I want to talk to you about um, perception because I guess one of the greatest issues you would have right now is how people believe you are as an individual. And I guess that's what I've tried to set up on this, this show, because I feel like our show has an advantage as a format to uncover someone that maybe has been getting bashed in the media or has had people jumping down their throat, essentially. Um, and the way I saw you on the show was someone who, who can be overreactionary. There's a similar, like I said, like myself, um, disagreeable, if someone's having a go at you, you're going to fire back just as hard. And people yeah. don't like that, unfortunately. Yeah. But that also makes you sometimes a little bit less politically correct, maybe cheeky like myself. I often get called by my mum. She always tells me I'm a smart ass, but that can have its, <laughs> like it can have its advantages. Yeah. Obviously, you, you yeah. stick up for yourself, um, you know, but there are disadvantages. So you split some people who, who may... Uh, just maybe they just don't like you. So mm. I guess the, the overall issues that I identified with my producer when we went through the notes of the show is obviously uh, during the show, you didn't disclose about this supposed girlfriend, but I can imagine primarily going into this, you're thinking, well, fuck, why would I do that? Cause this is not, this is not going to be, this is not going to turn out well for me and the context of explaining it in a longer format would make it make sense like a show like this, but on a show that it gets edited or maybe you don't have 30 minutes to an hour to talk to someone else about the situation, that stuff gets lost in the wash. So that, that was obviously one issue that you had. There's the discussion around this supposed girl in the gym. We don't have any footage of it. And the conversation with Rebecca in the gym. Yeah, well, I was going to yeah. say we we had all we have is Aldi Beck Judd, uh, which <laughs> she's proven not really to be a reliable source. So I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there. Yeah, because um, there was never actually a conversation in the gym. Yeah, well, no one no one can talk yeah. to it. Uh, I, I don't see how the show wouldn't have footage of it as a reality TV show. Mm. I don't see how they wouldn't potentially have something around that or why Beck wouldn't pull a producer to the side immediately yeah. or something like that. Anyway. There's a funny part B to that, Jordan. I actually went to the reception because there was a security camera in that gym and they said it picked up sound. And I went and said to one of the receptionists, cause they knew exactly who we all were because they were part of the whole kind of production in a sense. I said, Hey, can you get that footage and give it to our producer? Mm-hmm. And never heard again because I said to our producer, get on the reception. They said, they've got it. Never heard from it again because there was a part of, so I said before that there was no conversation in the gym. There was a conversation in the gym about the tasks and that was it. There was never no mention of a girl because there never was a secret girlfriend. Yeah. Well, irregardless, it's, uh, it's not really something that people can talk to because it's just yeah. a conversation between two people. And this it's yeah. obviously a case of he shits. He said, she said. Yeah. Now, 
you know, there is the fact that you did have a tendency to jump into the fray of drama. We've spoken about Sam before. Um, I can see that as, you know, probably unnecessary in hindsight. I think maybe you'd probably agree with that, but it's also a, an element of your personality. So it's kind of going to be a hard battle for you to fight in that regard. Um, I don't know how I would react in the same situation until I'm there. Uh, it does sound a lot like it's just a very weird setting where it, the the tensions are high. There's no moment of 15 minutes of a break to to let things simmer down. There's no opportunity to really discuss things properly. It's sort of like almost being on Twitter, watching a political scrap match or a fight of some yeah. kind. Um, so that, you know, is probably an issue that, that you'll have that even the uh, Sam will have as well, because he, he didn't really come across as a, as a great guy as well. And I think a lot of people, when you look at social media thought that I, I, it's, yeah, it's, you know, you've moved to Melbourne now, you're looking at a career professionally. Um, I've seen the way that some of my favorite presenters have spoken about you on shows and I get a sense yeah. that maybe things need to be spoken about more deeply. Yep. I guess for you personally, when, when you think about things in a nutshell, what do you think, what do you think you did wrong that gave these producers an easy opportunity and how would you like to set the narrative moving forward? Well, I think it goes back to the final audition as they call it, or the the first bit of filming that we do where it's set up as an audition, but you already know you're on the show by then. And I actually got asked about dating apps and partners that had sort of been there in the sort of in the foreground about, I don't know, throughout the process, was there anyone there? And I'm a pretty honest guy. And I said, yeah, look, I met someone in uh, Canberra on Tinder. Uh, It's no relationship, but we've just been hanging out, doing what people that hang out do, that type of vibe. And then that was sort of it for that. And then I sort of thought, well, yeah, I am single. Just because I'm hanging out with someone doesn't mean I'm in a relationship. And we both knew that. And the girl involved actually knew that I was going on Married at First Sight too. And as accepting as someone can be, she was accepting of it. So she knew it wasn't going to be any more than that. And then I guess to me, that all came out on camera because Cam and Coco decided to leave the experiment. And anyone that knows Mass year after year, there's always a cheating scandal that continues on for a duration of the show. And basically, I think they sort of got stuck for ideas of producers thinking, shit what can we do? We've lost them pretty early on, Cam and Coco. That's our probably big scandal for the year gone. So this is where this conversation from the gym comes with Rebecca, where Rebecca's turned around and said that she won. So her, it's hard to keep up with her stories because it's changed her point of view on this situation about five or six times now since the show's done. So the one that I can best remember is that she claims that she hadn't heard about any rumor of me having a secret girlfriend or anything like that until she got to the dinner party, her and Jake. Now, I know that's not true because she's the one that said that she had this conversation with me in the gym, which again, didn't happen, that had me mentioning a secret girlfriend and a gift. So a friend that I did have in Canberra, who was that girl, was part of the friendship group I was with in Canberra. And I said early on to Melissa and on camera that, yeah, I was part of a group dynamic that bought this girl a gift. I said, I don't see anything wrong with that. 
and Melissa was accepting of it as well. But to the uh-huh. others, so it, was a, it was a group thing. Yeah, it was a group gift. Yeah, it was a flower. It was a it was a plant. It wasn't for, even anything huge. For what? For a for birthday. a birthday. For a birthday. It's it a birthday gift and a group dynamic. And then to the others, I'm like, well, the others, it's none of their business what goes on. So I just keep saying, yeah, it's not like it's none of your business. There's nothing there for you to worry about. So when I kept saying, oh, there's no gift, it's because you don't need to know what happens in the personal life. I know that other stuff was happening behind the scenes with others and that never got raised. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep saying no because it's no one else's business apart from mine and Melissa's and the people that were involved. So we had that situation and then it sort of kept going and going. And then all of a sudden there was these revelations that were popping up here and there and it would just never go away. And I threw myself under the bus to the whole group by saying, hey, you know what? Sorry, I met a girl on Tinder before the show, hooked up with her a couple of times and then that was it. And everyone's like, oh, what? What? I never said that. But the producers knew that I'd mentioned that prior to the show commencing filming properly in that final audition, I'd mentioned it. So then they were like, hang on, he's mentioned this before to us. We can sort of big this up and play on it. So I like to sort of describe it as putting a, a bit of mayo on a story or a bit of salt and pepper to sweeten up the food. That's what they sort of did because they had then, I think it was, was it the girls night when Samantha came back and had apparently had this conversation with the guy I worked with in Canberra, who was supposedly my best mate that was never my best mate. And had said, yeah, this had all happened. I know the girl's name and all sort of stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And there was all things that had came about from that because I think, the producers just wanted something to come out in the hope. So we even went to Canberra that was forced by producers. We had to submit final dates um, like all of us grooms did. And I suggested doing a cruise on Sydney Harbour, which funnily enough, Rebecca and Jake went and did. So they're like, no, we want to go to Canberra. We're sending you to guys to Canberra. And I said, well, we haven't been able to do anything during here as in leave the apartment. Why did you send us to Canberra? And they said, oh, we're going to send you to your home. I said, well, you know, it's not really my home. And I said, you guys know it's only a short-term thing for me in Canberra. It's why are you making out this big deal that it's from Canberra? I even turned around and said, oh, do you have to make out as if it's a big deal because no one from Canberra is ever on a reality TV show and it's the nation's capital and gets left behind half the time. And they're like, no, 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 we just want you to go and show her some things. So give us some suggestions about doing this. So I was like, okay, they kept insisting. I then organized for us to go to uh, the Canberra Raiders home ground to go and kick a footy. I'm a sports guy. It made sense for me to go there. Then uh, the guy I worked with, Jason, had organized for us to go and do some go boating on Lake Belly Griffin. And the producers then miraculously found out that the turf at the Canberra Raiders Stadium was being relayed the three days that we were off, the two days we were in Canberra, which was a crock of shit. Um, because I'd rung my general manager at the radio station who'd organized and he said, it's not true. And then they turned around and said that we can't do go boating because it's not good for audio. So I was then sent a YouTube clip from the owner of the go boating in camera saying, Hey, they filmed travel guides here a couple of months ago, a channel nine endemol show just pass on this and say, Hey, we've filmed here before it. It works all fine. And then they saw it and then obviously ignored it because they'd shown been shown that they were lying again. So we got to Canberra then. We, the biggest thing for us was that we had the friends catch up where there's that secret footage of my friends saying, oh, he's lying, he's lying, he's lying. So basically they had been told from the producer whose name was Jess that came down. So not even our own couple's producer had the guts to come down with us to Canberra because she was, I'm going to say, too ashamed of what was about to happen. 
and how we were going to be sort of stitched up. And we had this producer who was the best of getting shit out of anyone. She would get blood out of a stone as producer. I kid you not. And she had said to my friends, hey, Bryce has said that he's got a girlfriend and that uh, he's bought a gift, but we've got him saying that he hasn't bought a gift, so he's lying. And they're like, huh? We don't really know much about it. And said, so oh, like, well, ask him about this situation with the secret girlfriend and the gift. So we also let on camera. That's basically all we saw. Something else that you didn't see from that situation was uh, the producer forced us to switch phones and go through our phones, through call histories, through texts, through Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, you name it, any sort of way to find something on camera. They were filming it all. It never made it to screen because there was nothing that they found vice versa. And we both turned around and said, we're not the sort of people to sort of snoop through phones. That's a real, I guess, untrustworthy trait to have in a relationship. And we're not those sort of people. And she's like, well, it'll clear the air, won't it? I said, well, yeah, it will. Um, so we did it. In, in hindsight, what do you think you could have done to arrest the narrative around this sort of stuff? Or do you think, do you think once you're e- either liked or disliked or your particular narrative is taken a certain way by producers, there's, there's not much you can do about it. No, honestly, for the first time in my life, I was clueless on what to do. I was being as honest as possible with situations um, to everyone, not even just Melissa, to everyone there, producers, the head of the show, um, the other participants on the show, and still it wasn't good enough. So honestly, that's where... For me, my mental health went downhill rapidly after that because I was like, you know what? I'm literally repeating myself week after week at a dinner party, at a ceremony, and I'm constantly being attacked for speaking the honest truth. So my mental health went downhill very quickly. How do you, with the, um, what do they call them? The couples sort of, I don't know what their titles are, but you know, the three essentially psychologists that sit on the couch, uh, the experts, the experts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, are they all psychologists? Uh, so from what we've heard, they have been apparently I'm not sure about Alessandra cause she's new, uh, but she's a sexologist. Okay. But from what we've been told through official psychologists, now that Melissa and I see here in Melbourne, that, uh, John and um, the lady, I can't remember her name. The she, one in the middle. Yeah. yeah, the blonde lady. She, um, well, they both aren't credited or it's not approved for them to be certified psychologists on this show because it's a TV show. Okay. Um, apparently it's the same with Dr. Phil as well. I've, um, we were told that too. Dr. Phil isn't an accredited psychologist. Yeah, it, it, would, it would make sense because you're not paying for advice. Yeah. So it's not, uh, that was the weirdest thing to me is that I always found that, and look, I got into mass really, really late. I, I probably, the, in the, the first proper season that I watched on TV was your season. And before that I'd watch clips on YouTube. And so obviously I was very, you know, like I'm a big fan of the internet comedians here and, Australia, it's it's a great trope for them to do reviews of maths. We all know it can be trashy TV. Mm. Um, and I always just thought looking at the way that these psychologists or experts spoke that it wasn't it wasn't really a guiding way. It was it was almost like they were producers as well. It was very I don't know, it was very, very strange. 
Well, um, essentially they are because they all wear earpieces and every bit of questioning comes from Tara, the head producer. Okay. And if it's not Tara, it's another one of the head producers because you can actually hear it because it's so quiet in that room and you can hear, and you can see they're wearing earpieces too, but you hear this bzz, 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 in the background and it's conversations coming because the conversations don't flow like you see on TV. I'll ask a question, they'll sit there and pause and I'll just look at you and do a few different smiles or like that and then so Bryce what do you think about this but there's about a 15 second break in between questions and response so it's it's all heavily put together and uh, it's just yeah watching it play out on tv is the most frustrating part because you know how it plays out at the time Mm. but you can chop and change things around as much as you want I guess it's an interesting discussion because reality tv when my friend sold that show to channel seven it was so like it was a very hard sell. So comedy, mm. original comedy is hard to sell. You've got Kinney Tonight on Channel 10. There's very limited other shows that are on the networks. Most of the networks are rebuying every year. They go to that event in the south of France and they buy the rights to essentially produce a show within their territory. In this case, yeah. maths, I can't remember which territory it came from, but seeing as the UK is the home of reality television. I think it's Danish. Is it? Okay. I think it's from Denmark originally, yeah. So, yeah, I just would have assumed the UK, a lot of these shows can be, or maybe it's just that the UK uh, networks buy it from European companies and then they just, you know, they make it a popular household type thing. Yeah. Um, it was very interesting when a lot of these internet comedians did reviews of, so, The Bachelor, and there was that character, Jamie, that got quite a hard... Uh, quite a hard sell, not a hard sell, but he had oh, a hard time. Doran. Yeah. Pardon? You know Jamie the one Doran. I'm Jamie Doran. That's it. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's a good mate of Melissa and I now. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's that's very interesting because you know, we we're obviously starting to see instances of former reality TV consistents now suing shows essentially. Yeah. I don't know if they're suing the production company or they're suing the network. In the case uh, of Jamie company, yeah. Is it the production company? Yeah, so this is the another misconception with reality TV. It's not actually the networks that are making the program. No, they're it's just paying for it. Yeah, they're just buying a finished product. It's the production company. So in Jamie's case, it's Warner Brothers um, for The Bachelor. In our case, it is Endemol Shine. Okay, yeah, because, um, you know, Stepmates is a production company. They sold a TV show to Channel 7. Channel 7 buys it for X amount, and they hope they can sell enough ads to cover the cost yeah, of it. Yeah, basically. Essentially. Yeah, so do you think that there's, with Jamie's experience, do you think that we're going to see more former contestants sue networks or production companies with the way these things are edited? It's a very tough one. Um, Jamie and I have actually had this conversation a few times because he reached out to me during the show when it was on. And there's actually a proven track record of it now with, I think she was on My Kitchen Rules, the lady that sued channel or the company that makes that maybe it might have been a month or so ago maybe a month or two ago that she was only on a few episodes and her portrayal apparently was quite negative and she actually sued him successfully now it's such a long process and i won't go into jamie's details because i actually know how he's going into it but it's a process that's going to take years and years and years to find any sort of outcome um the contracts too are so tight that Basically, it's written in there that you can be portrayed however they want as they see fit 
to fit into their TV show. Now, I never actually read my mass contract. Um, I had a solicitor look over it for me and I had a few things changed around because Endemol wanted to try and block me from going on air when the show was on in terms mm-hmm. of any sort of capacity because if I spoke out about what was happening on the show and the actual true storyline, it wouldn't fit the narrative. So even when we did publicity for the show, it was a very similar thing. We had to sort of speak about it in a sense of how it played out to the viewer on channel nine. And I said to him, I'm just going to tell it how it is. I said, if you guys show it wrong, that's on you guys. I said, I'll call it out. Mm. And um, I actually got pulled off publicity for a week around the, the retreat. So when the incident with Beck happened, um, because they knew that I was going to speak out um, about what actually happened at that retreat and they didn't want it getting out. So I got pulled from publicity for a week. Uh, they'll just say that there was no one inquiring, but I can guarantee now people were inquiring to have me on their radio shows and whatnot to find out about what happened there because I was getting direct messages on Messenger. What has that taught you individually about like owning your audience and owning your own message. I mean, you have a relationship with Kyle and Jackie O now, obviously. Um, I'm sure there would be other shows in Melbourne. Do you think in hindsight, getting on the front foot there would have helped? Yeah, absolutely. I um, <laughs> I had numerous phone calls from Tara, the executive producer of the show, while it was on. Oh, I've heard your interviews. Like You're doing very well. Like You've got a lot on your plate, but look, people don't want to hear you trying to stand up for yourself. They just want to hear you talk about the narrative. I said, no, that's not true. I said, I'm just telling it how it is. And she would try and convince me on the phone that this was happening to the point I would just hang up on her because I said, I'm not going to hear your bullshit. I'm not here to play your games. I'm not here to fit your narrative to try and make you money. You're trying to essentially fuck us over. So I'm just going to say it how it is. And that's why I got pulled for that week because that situation around the retreat was told to happen from a producer. So all these lines around sexual harassment, sexual assault, all that sort of stuff. Well, that comes back on Endemol. So getting on the front foot from my point of view was just a case of saying my version of events. Now, people saw it as whinging. Uh, people saw it as me trying to just change the perception, but it was actually just me telling it how it was. And having Melissa there to sort of back it up too, I guess made the the facts more authentic. And I'd have, I've had conversations with Kyle Sandlands um, about what happened off camera. And he goes, it doesn't surprise me. Now he's not going to jump on his radio show and say it because that goes against what they're trying to do as well. But there's a lot of people in media that can sort of tell what is happening and what's true and what's not. Uh, criticism. It's obviously saying that you've had to deal with and you would have had to learn to deal with. Um, one of my favorite, uh, Influencers who I'm actually interviewing her manager because we're in the talent space as well. Former maths contestant in Martha. Uh, she wasn't she wasn't your biggest fan on the uh no. the red wine moments. Um well, it wasn't even just that, it was even on her own page, on her own social media pages. Of course. Yeah. And I mean, she she's not met you, she's obviously hearing things uh from producers because she's working with the digital team. Yep. I know there's been people that have obviously made critical videos of you and called you you and your relationship with Melissa abusive. I guess yep. I would be intrigued if you had the opportunity to sit down with these people who make the content before meeting you and, and speaking to you and understanding your perspective, what would you want to say to them? 
Ah, it's been a tough one because it's been brought up many times and we've spoken about it on our podcast and have actually had a discussion with a domestic violence agency about it. To me, it's a classic example of don't judge a book by its cover. I think just because what you've seen on the show and the way something's portrayed doesn't mean that's actually what is actually happening because people keep saying that, oh, it's on camera. It's all there. It's proof. Like that's what you did. I said, sure, but things can be put in that way. Um, for example, the honeymoon where we had that honesty box where Melissa was in tears over comments I'd made saying, oh, like about the blonde hair, the blue eyes, like the normal type of girl I would go for. And hey, if I saw you in a bar, would I go up to you? I don't think so. Um, conversations like that were cut out and pieced, piece by piece. So her crying to that wasn't actually over that conversation because in that conversation, I'd said, hey, would I go up to you in a bar? Uh, no, I wouldn't actually normally, but that's where I've gone wrong in the past. And that's why I'm here to try and change who I am. So that was obviously cut halfway through, the rest deleted, just leave it there. I wouldn't go up to you in a bar. Then you've got blonde hair, blue eyes. That was another separate question. Then her in tears. So her being in tears to clear it up was actually a free question that she had. And she's happy for me to say this because it is actually what happened. She asked me if I was genuinely there for the right reasons. And it was the last question. We've been lying on that wooden floor for about four or five hours. I was sick and tired of it. It was late at night. And I said, look, I said, if you're going to question me not being here for the right reasons, I don't think you know me like you sort of say you do because we got to know each other very quickly, um, Melissa and I. So when we had free time during the honeymoon, we were there having really important conversations, which to be fair, probably should have happened on camera. But we were just like, we just actually really wanted to know each other because we both maintain that if there was ever a point where we didn't think this could work on the outside, we would just sort of say, hey, off camera, hey, it's not going to work. Let's find a nice way of getting out of this situation. So we both had that agreement from literally the second night of the experiment. The night after the wedding, we went through that. And then the night, first night of the honeymoon, we had that discussion in a holding hotel. And the conversation around that was me getting frustrated because I'd said, oh, if you're going to question it. But then I thought to, I'm like, the Melissa that I've got to know in this week or so, that's not something that she would ask. Now you might turn around and say, hey, you don't know Melissa after a week properly, which to be fair is a, a fair statement to make. But that was the first thing that had come from a producer. So I say to her, hey, ask if Bryce is genuine because I made such a deal about in the backstory, people questioning me because I'm from a radio background, media background, if I would be on a show like Married at First Sight for genuine reasons, especially add to that too, ending an engagement six months prior. So they knew that would get a reaction out of me. And yeah, I did bite back. Um, but I was like, well, she sort of got upset of me saying, well, if you don't think I'm genuine, I may as well leave tomorrow morning. Cause I said, I'm not going to waste my time. She's like, no, I, that's not what I meant. And when she got upset, that's when I realized that that wasn't from her. And we had a conversation that night because they said to us, look, don't have a conversation about this. We'll talk about it in the morning. We'll pick it up then. So we went to bed and of course we had a conversation about it. Listen, I, I said, can I, cause I was actually still genuinely pretty pissed off. And she goes, Bryce, I need you to understand. I didn't mean that. I said, well, you asked a question. So clearly you didn't mean that you had some sort of sense of you that you thought I wasn't genuine. And she's like, no, the producer told me to ask you that as my free question. And I said, well, why'd you go along with it? She's like, because she told me to ask it. And this is so early on that we didn't know that yeah, to okay. resist. So that was obviously someone being very naive and me reacting to it, which made her upset, which could then be pieced together her in tears to a comment to make me look worse and what I actually played out. So that's just another classic example of the editing. And it's just, 
you look back at it now and just think, oh, I, I wish I didn't say it because they're, they're hurtful comments. I'll own that and say, hey, some myself, even to sort of partially put in a sentence, would I go up to you in a bar? Probably not. But that's why I need to change. Even to have that first part of the sentence, it's still hurtful. Mm. Even if I'm trying to validate it by what I'm saying afterwards, it never got shown on TV. It's still a hurtful thing to say. So that's where I did need to mature and grow up and sort of learn a bit more about how to speak to women when getting to know them. But I guess yeah. that was coming with me getting to know someone new after being with someone for five and a half years. I'd forgotten how to essentially pick up women. But also, you know, you think about for both of you, both you and Melissa, the, the personality traits that you have, you've known this person for a week. At the end of the day, yeah. they're, a, they're, they're a stranger still a little bit, you know, although you've been completely around them for a week and you can get to know someone very, very quickly. Yeah. It's still someone that you've known for a week, right? So yeah. it's just, um, you know, I can really see how this environment would encourage a lot of this stuff. And um, I mean, I guess I hope in the way that we've done the interview today that people can get a sense as to you as an individual. I mean, I can see at some point us doing an interview with Melissa and getting to know her as an individual. And I think these sort of formats are like uh, the type of media and conversations of the future that allows people to get past a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of future, I know it's been quite a few months since post-production and everything's been filmed and you've done the media. Yeah. You guys are together on the peninsula. You've got your own podcast now. If you think about your year, yes, we've just come out of a lockdown literally last night. So it's, it's, you know, the Friday just after. Yeah. What do you, what do you personally want for the year for 2021? For me personally, just for Melissa and I to keep continuing to establish this healthy, solid relationship that we do have. And honestly, if it's away from the public eye, even better for us. Now, we've got some things coming up that are going to put us straight back in there, whether we like it or not. And Mm. there's this whole perception of us that by doing something like the podcast or by posting stuff of us on social media, is trying to keep us relevant in the public profile spotlight. That is not what we're about. Uh, anyone that knows us well knows that we are the exact opposite to that description. We like just being a normal small town couple in the Mornings Peninsula, just like anyone else. And we know that there is an interest in us and we completely respect that too. People have watched this show, got to know us, love us or hate us. The people that do actually like us and follow us, we do feel like we respect those people enough to allow them into our lives through platforms like our podcast or social media. So we think it'd be rude of us as a couple of individuals to shut ourselves off away from that because people invested time into watching us got to sort of know us on personal levels through our social media platforms now. And if we were to sort of go and just completely shut off to the world, that'd just be us being rude human beings. So we're not going to do that anytime soon, but. But it would also be, losing an opportunity i mean you've said it yourself that you're always looking at the next thing it would be you would probably look back on it in decades to come and say that was a lost opportunity to if you were to go back into your shells and neither of you were to do anything you have an audience and a platform i think it would be disappointing if you didn't do anything further yeah and we both are uh, particularly we're looking at um, doing some stuff in the mental health space there's been no secret that Melissa has gone through some stuff 
with the show. Um, both of us, but Melissa mainly has been the right sort of channel to promote that. And uh, I've done a lot of charity work before uh, doing Made at First Sight. So that's essentially kind of hasn't harmed it. But at the same time too, it's tried to put a bit of a dent in that because I would like to go back into doing that. Now I don't get paid to do that sort of thing. I just do it off my own back because I like being able to help people. Um, I did the variety bash for variety of children's charity a few years ago. And um, Melissa and I are both going to do some stuff with them later in the year um, when we've got a bit more free time to do so. And just other like sort of mental health stuff, we'll be doing things with that too. So we're going to try and use our platform for good. We know that we've got it and we do appreciate the platform that we have got off doing a show like Married at First Sight, but we intend to use it for good. Um, yeah, that's probably the best way of describing it. But Melissa is off social media a little bit at the moment um, to focus on her mental health. And obviously yeah. I'm there to support her with that. And I'm still using mine because I do like to interact with people and she knows that. So for You're me, a I'm getting, guy. yeah, exactly. I'm getting messages uh, daily and I do like to interact with people. So I think if people have taken a time of day to send me a message and ask a question, I normally respond to them when I get a chance. It might take a couple of days or a week or so, but I normally do like to get back to someone because I think it's nice to have people that do support us. So we get on board with that. And yeah, there's other things moving forward that will sort of show how genuine we are as a couple. I know there's a lot of people that question if we're in it for the right reasons and if we are authentic. Um, I would say hands down, we're the most authentic and genuine couple from this series. Um, and probably in recent years gone, uh, that will come out in the near future. I'm sure yeah. as to why I think that, but um, yeah, when you not to compare other couples on the show, but uh, yeah, it's, I definitely think we are leaps and bounds more genuine than the other couples. Yeah. I think, look, I think you're obviously going to have a bias towards that and that's fair. I mean, it, it is yeah. your life. Um, rightly so. I, <laughs> I, I, I rightly so. I, but I think, I think you should let other people, um, I think you should allow yourselves to worry about your own relationship and, and let interviews like this allow people to understand you both Yeah, as a couple. Um, it's been a very interesting chat. I want to just ask you some rapid fire questions to finish off. Go for um, it. What's your morning and evening routine looking like at the moment? Morning and evening routine. Uh, morning, well, hopefully it gets back to the same because of lockdown, but uh, normally going to do some F45 okay. in the morning. And then uh, the evening is either going for a walk or soccer training or just having a bit of chill out downtime. Okay. Are you playing soccer locally? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I play for Somerville. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, best purchase under $200? Ooh, I'm a sucker for Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> and I, I love to drive a hard bargain too. So it's got to be something off a Facebook Marketplace of some sort. Okay. Facebook marketplace. Yeah. I mean, the common one is AirPods or something like that. Um, are they under 200 bucks? No, they're just over. It's everyone's, although they are getting slightly cheaper. It depends if you get the pro uh, yeah, AirPods Pro yeah. or not. Um, <laughs> all right. Last question for you. What's sort of uh, in the last six months since we've been locked down, what's been your go to item in the fridge uh, that you keep coming back to? Oh, uh, has to be watermelon. Watermelon? Melissa yeah, and I are obsessed with watermelon. Um, okay. Have been have you, for a while, but during lockdown especially, we've upped the ante on the watermelon intake. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's this trend on TikTok at the moment with watermelon and mustard. Um, oh, I don't know TikTok, so... 
Okay, so it's apparently this. It tastes amazing. This thing. Um, okay. If you put mustard, like probably American mustard or something like that, yeah. on <laughs> watermelon, it's a it's a thing. So don't right. ask me why. I'll, I'll I haven't tried. I'm I haven't, not a mustard fan, but I'll give it a crack. I haven't tried it. I can't say I would try it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's a nice way to cap off cap off the chat. Bryce, mate, thank you so much for doing this. I know we've moved around quite a few times. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, the best place uh, to find me is either on LinkedIn, on my full name, or on Instagram as well. Um, probably Instagram's the best one. Uh, we keep an eye on it um, semi-regularly, so happy to interact. What happens after show on Spotify or all your good podcast platforms? We were, I was listening or had a look at all that stuff earlier um, with my producer. We'll make sure we link all of that. But um, Bryce, thanks for sitting down with me for, for well over an hour. Thanks, mate. No, thank you. And uh, thank you to those that do support us. Um, we can't thank people enough because we know that we do – sit in the fence with a lot of people. Uh, people will either love us or hate us, I mean, in particular. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm accepting of that. That's sort of the way the world works these days with social media. But um, definitely keep an eye on our podcast. We've got three or four episodes left in okay. this series and uh, we've got some pretty big announcements to make too. So uh, awesome. keep an eye on that. Bryce, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you do like it, please subscribe. And of course, like if you're watching the YouTube video as well. Uh, We'd really appreciate that. You can also find our Clips channel in the description. For audio, if you're not already listening, you can search Uncommon on Pocket Cast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts quite easily. For video, if you're not watching, you can search Uncommon on YouTube. And for behind-the-scenes takes and clips uh, on social media, then definitely check out at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But otherwise, look, thanks so much for tuning in. And until next time, thanks for listening.